Um, good to see you. It's been nice to be back. And uh, I heard that whoop, whoop. <laughs> Why don't we try that together? One, two, three, whoop. Awesome. Hey, uh, by the way, Amber, who was just up here sharing her husband, just got accepted into a PhD program in England. So we totally celebrate that. That's great news, Ben. And uh, we're so glad to have you guys here this morning. I want to share with you, we've been on our series of Finding Freedom. And today I want to talk with you about the second purpose of why we exist, is to help people find freedom. And we're going to walk through that. But I'm going to need some help from heaven today because I had about like four hours of sleep between the past two nights. You know how sometimes you get that and then all of a sudden you just drift? And then you come back again, and then you drift, and then you come back again. And so uh, the coffee's wearing off. So if you would stand with me, we're going to invite God to show up. We believe just as he showed up in worship that he can show up in his word and that you can, look, you can hear what God is saying and it speaks directly into your life, into your circumstances. And that's what we're going to believe here this morning, that God's going to speak directly into your lives and give you a word for help and hope. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for the journey, that we're not in it alone, that we're not on it our own, but that we're walking by faith with you, that you have already calculated the things in us that need to be taken out and the things in us that need to be put in and how that process and that journey takes place. We just thank you, Lord, that you love us where we're at, but you're guiding us to where we need to be. And so today, I just pray that today's message would help us see the next few steps that help us experience a win in your presence, that you're a God that's not far away, but you're a God that's nearby. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Siéntete, por favor. I want to start this morning with just one simple verse, one simple verse, and it's found in the book of Genesis. And what I'd like to do is read this for you, but then give some broader perspective to it. It's found in Genesis 15, 7, and it simply reads this. And he said to him, this is God talking to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Listen to it again. Genesis 15, 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. If that sounds familiar and you can't put your finger on it, there should be a reason for that because it's the same language that God uses with Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus 20, verse 2. He says this, I am the Lord who took you out of Egypt, the land of bondage. No other gods before me. When we look at the life of Abraham, there's one word that comes up over and over again. It's the word believe. It's God is, when, whenever you see Abraham, whenever you see Moses' name come up, it's usually the presence of God. It's the law of the Lord. Whenever Abraham's name pops up, it's always the concept of faith and trust. And faith is that kind of thing where it's, you know, you ask yourself, well, what is real faith, right? Is it, is it that kind of thing where it's like you cross your fingers and you're like, oh, I hope that it works out. And, you know, oh, I, I, I'm having faith to believe. It's really this empty, open hand that realizes there is no way I can earn this. There's no way that I can do this. There's no way that I can make this happen in my life. And so God, if it's going to happen, it has to be. It has to be you. And so with an empty, open hand, that's really how Abraham lives his life. God comes in. In fact, when you read Abraham's life story, God never gives him any commandments. The only commandment he gives him is this, walk before me. But it says about Abraham that if he was working for a check in the book of Romans, you know, you work a job, you get a check, you earn that. But it's not. It says that for Abraham that he believed God and God gave him righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about a righteous life, I think about somebody who, you know, don't, don't drink, don't chew, and don't hang out with those who do, you know, however that says in the South. I don't know, up here we'd be like, you know, I don't know. But, but it's, when, when you're talking about a life of righteousness, you're like, okay, I'm not doing the things that I, I, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do this, and I don't do that, and maybe you could throw in like, and I'm loving, and I'm kind, and I'm patient, and I'm all these different things, but wait a second. 
I just simply believe that God makes me righteous, not because of what I do, but because of who he is. And then it's like God just reached, he just fills my account with holiness and righteousness and forgiveness and mercy and grace, and that, that's how this thing works out. That's, that's crazy to me. I mean, I gotta do something to make it happen, right? I mean, I, I have to, I have to, you know, I have to, and God looks at Abraham and he says to him, Abraham, I'm gonna use you as an example to the entire world to show the world what it is like to walk a walk of faith, to have a life of trust, to have a life of, of faith, and I'm gonna do it in a journey. And it starts in this place of Ur the Chaldeans, and if you go to the Middle East and you look at, at this whole journey that Abraham does, literally, the, he goes to Israel and then he goes down to Egypt, but literally from Ur, that's, right now, you're looking at Kuwait and, and Iraq and then Syria and Lebanon and Turkey and then he goes down into the country of Israel and then he goes into Egypt for a little bit. That's like 1,700 miles of walking. How many of you have walked 100 miles straight? Alex Cabrera actually runs 100 miles. You're crazy, Alex, wherever you are. You're probably out in the foyer. But I don't, this, week, this week, I, the latter part of the week, I was in New York City, and so like, I know what it is to walk in the city, right? You walk to the subway, you walk to the bus, you walk to the bagel shop, you walk to the pastrami sandwich, you walk to the coffee shop, you walk back to the pastrami sandwich, you walk to the bus, you walk to the subway. And, and it, it, but when it was all said and done, I think like, you know, it was, it was like maybe a, a few miles, that's it. But imagine taking a journey like that. But there's more to the story than this. In fact, the story is really a story about finding freedom. It's a story of God taking somebody's life out of the world and into a relationship with God. And the thing about the Bible is there's just all kinds of different types of people that everyone can relate to, but when I look at Say, for instance, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, and he's, he's talking about things that look like a crazy cartoon anime CIG experience, and I can't, like, the heavens open, and armies, and rivers of blood, and all this stuff, and it's like, this, I just don't get it. I read the book of Ezekiel, and he's having visions with angels, and all kinds of funky, crazy stuff, and and I can't relate to that. I look at Peter, who gets out of the boat and walks on water. I can't relate to that. But a guy like Abraham, I can relate to somebody who God says, just start moving in this direction, and I'll change your life forever. But God, what about, just trust me. I can relate to that. And I think for all of us here this morning, when it comes to a journey to finding freedom, that God's gonna speak to you through the life of Abraham. Let me open it up a little bit more in detail. In Genesis, Abraham starts, his journey really starts in chapter 11, and it goes all the way through chapter like 23. There's more in his life than we have time to talk about, but what I wanna do is talk and show you from the life of Abraham how to find freedom to walk by faith and just continue the journey. You know, I remember hearing a quote, I, I, don't, I don't remember what boxer said it, but they said that, that the guy who wins the fight is the one that got up one more time than the other person did. And in this season that we've been going through as a, as a nation, as a world, in a season of, of uncertainties and growing dangers and threats and powers and, and sickness and all of this, it's, it's like you just want to just give up. It's like, I just, you know what? I just want to like simplify life and just, you know, how many of you have already gone through all of the stuff that Netflix has to offer? How many of you have watched all of the films that you downloaded from iTunes and like you've already like restocked it and watched those twice, three times? This has been such a crazy journey. And I want to get up one more time, a miracle the person that experiences the miracle life is the person that just gets up in their humanness one more time to give God one more chance. Somebody's here this morning who is down 
for the 500th or 5,000th time, and you're saying, I just can't deal with it, and you just want to sit there and just kind of twirl your hair and gaze off, and God's saying, get up and keep trusting me. Get up and keep walking in my direction. Get up and keep following me because you're one last step up from a miracle for your life. Just when you think it's all over, God shows up, and he shows up and begins this really happy-go-lucky, simple story with Abraham, with his father. It says this, Genesis eleven twenty-seven. Now, these are the generations of Terah. This is Abraham's father. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father. We're talking about trauma here. Apparently, in Abraham's story, his little brother died in the arms of his father. I don't know if he was knifed in the streets. I don't know if he overdosed. I don't know what it was, but I know that in this building here this morning that that would be true of many of us in this place where we've watched death in our own arms and held it as it took its last breath and said, my goodness, where's God? And Abraham's father was sitting there in the streets of the New York City of that day. It was as alive as would ever be because at that, at that time, it was, it was the peak of civilization. It was, it was the New York City, it was the Tokyo, it was the Hong Kong of their day. It was the, the Paris of the, of, of the, the world at that time. And, and he's, he's sitting there and all of a sudden, they experience this tragedy and something happens in Terah. And it says, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans, Terah took Abram, his son Lot, his son Haran, his grandson, uh, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans, listen to this though, to go, sorry I didn't change it on you there, to go into the land of Canaan. Where's, where's, Where's this guy Terah going to? Canaan. What is Canaan? It's promised land. It's God's will for your life. It's it's everything good. How many of you have that life in mind, that place, that sweet place where everything falls into place? Your wife hands you the remote control and says, watch as much television as you want, honey. Your children, their rooms are clean. For some reason, Amazon delivers a bunch of packages and your spouse is not married and mad at you. It's, it's acceptable. I, I have a vision of heaven in my mind, but this is, he catches a glimpse of something and it says, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Now, just looking back here at that journey that he took, he was headed to the Holy Land, but he never got there. He got detoured. He almost made it, but he didn't quite make it. What happened? I, I don't know because the Bible really doesn't say, and as much as I'd be tempted to preach that, you know what, he, he didn't make it, you know, and some of you out there aren't gonna make it, and some of you are stuck, and you know, that preach is really, really good. I don't know, I've come to find this, that some of us here, that you are actually living the desires and dreams that your parents had because God thinks generationally. See, my, my, I'll give you an example from my own life. My grandfather always wanted our family to live in the country and to have like space and land and all this of their own. And so what he did at 20 is he hopped on a boat and he came over to the United States, slept a few nights under the Brooklyn Bridge, opened up a business, moved his family from Manhattan, out of Manhattan into, into outside into Westchester County. And then after that, my father took our family from there and we moved to Connecticut. And while we were in Connecticut, he started taking us to church all the time. And we were in the, the church, and, and years later, God gets a hold of my life, and I'm, I'm off, and I'm, I'm preparing for ministry, and my dad turns to me, and he says, you know, I always wanted to be a missionary. I always wanted to be a missionary. What? My dad, and, and my grandfather always wanted us to live outside of the city. My dad did that. 
So something in this man is saying, there's got to be more to this. God, he heads for this place that he hears about called Canaan, but he doesn't quite fully make it. But while Abraham's there in chapter 12, you turn the page and the story continues. And it reads, as soon as his father dies, it says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to bless your life. I don't know where you are in the journey, but I do know this, is that no doubt serving God is a journey, and we're all at different phases of it. And some of us are further and fast-tracked along, and some of us are exiting, and we're early in this, and we're right in, in Ur of the Chaldeans, and God's drawing you out. Or maybe you're in your journey, and you've brought your family along, and you, you, you're there, and you're looking at the potential of your kids. I don't know where you are in this, but I do know this. It is God's will for our life to live in his promises, that your life isn't an accident, that you have purpose, that God wants to use you, that he doesn't just want you to know him and find freedom, but he wants you to discover purpose and make a difference in the world. He wants to to do through you what he did through Abraham to bless the whole world through your life. He wants to bless your family. He wants to bless your children. But it's a journey. And sometimes we get stuck in the past in that journey. How many of you could relate to this? You, you're, you're, for those of you that are further along the Christian journey, you're journeying and just when you think that you've arrived as a mature Christian, you do something so stupid, you're like, I could have done that the first week that I was, uh, I, like, that, that, that looks more like the old me than it does the one that is so far along in my walk with Jesus. How did I do that? How was I so dumb? How, how, I thought that that was gone in my life. And this is what I love about Abraham is, is that he is, by, he is by far no perfect person. I can relate to somebody like that. I take three steps forward, two back, and I'm like, well, hey, I got one ahead of the game. What's interesting about Abraham is, is, is a verse that shows up when Joshua is bringing the Israelites into the promised land, finally, as a nation. And, and this promise that Abraham gets is being fulfilled. He says this, he says, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. That's Ur of the Chaldeans. Terah, <coughs> the father of Abraham, and Nahor, who's his brother, and they served other gods. So what we have in the story of Abraham's family is, is that they weren't a family of faith, but God was drawing them out. How many of you are here and you're the first Christian in your family? Raise your hand real quick if that's you. I see one hand, two hands. You're the first person. You began a journey that doesn't have to end with you. How many of you come from a family that you've been going to church as long as you know? You, you've got some of your worst beatings sitting in church from your parents. You're traumatized by church. He didn't come from a godly home. And there's the Jewish people really love telling stories. There's this one story that's told because they're trying to figure out this verse where it says that Abraham's father and brother were idol worshipers, but Abraham's the father of faith, so they try to clean it up with cute little stories. You know, it's not biblical, it's not, uh, I'm not about to read something that's from the Bible, but they, they do it in a nice Jewish kind of way about it, and the story basically goes like this, that Abraham's father and brother owned an idol shop. It was a family business, and so they the father and brother, Terah and Nahor, had to go out and take care of some stuff. So they turned to Abraham and said, Abraham, would you, we've got to go and get some bagels. And so would you please watch the idol shop while we go? And he's like, all right, father, I don't want to do it. I don't like these idols, but hey, okay, fine. And so Abraham's sitting in the shop and he's looking at the idols and he's, he's sitting there and, and time goes by and his father and his brother come in and as soon as they walk in, they go, I they! They see that all of the idols are smashed. They're destroyed. There's pottery and 
clay and concrete and dust and the place looks like it was just rushed by a, 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 a riot except for this one gigantic statue, just one sitting there all by itself and they go, Abraham, they go, what happens here? My goodness, the story goes, well, Father, it's interesting. You see, the big God was jealous, and he said, I am the true God. And so he took all the other idols, and he smashed them, and he proved that he's the winner. And he goes, but Abraham, he goes, it's just clay and stone and wood. And Abraham said to his father, aha, aha. Uh-huh. That's how Jewish people do the punchline to a joke. Uh-huh. Basically, in other words, Dad, like we say this when we were in the 80s growing up, no duh, no duh. That's the point. I don't know what your background is, but I know what your foreground is. And I know that there's a reason why the rearview mirror is smaller than the windshield, is that God has your life designed to move forward to better days, to bigger opportunities, to broader places and better things and better moments in your life, but it's still a journey. And you may not be who you ought to. Maybe once in a while you look in the rearview mirror and you see the idol shop of your life. It's so hard to live in this world without getting entangled by it. And it's a complicated thing that Jesus said, be in the world and not of the world. That's a tension to be managed. It's never a problem that's fully solved. But we serve a God who is calling us into promise. And he says it like this, I am the Lord who brought you out of or of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God is for you. He wants you, he wants you to be blessed. He wants you to possess everything that is good for your life if you will just trust him. And while that's the truth, I've come to find out that in a faith journey, it's not sneezing, so I can't say God bless you, but that's the cutest cough. <laughs> you can cough any time in here. Oh my gosh, so cute. So, I've come to find that in my faith journey, that although I'd like to think that I am a lot further along than I am, sometimes I just find myself reverting back to that thing that I just need to continue to hand to God in faith. It's said like this, I may not be the person that I ought to be, but thank God I'm not the person I used to be. And I think that when God says to Abraham, I'm, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, that, that would be in the New, in the New Testament and in, in the time of like David, that's Babylon. And then when you look at Egypt, Egypt is that place of bondage and slavery. I think that the place of Ur of the Chaldeans is that place where you are thinking that you're free, but you're really enslaved because you're living in the, the center of the world. And what's amazing is, is that God pulls Abraham out of the place. If ever there was a place where the message could have gotten out quicker, it was Ur. If there was ever a place where the finances could have rolled in faster, it was Ur. If there was ever a place where you could have gathered together large crowds, it was Ur. But God didn't choose to do that. He pulled him out of all that. And what's amazing at, in my life is that I've come to see that sometimes the very direction I think God should do it to fast track it, he sometimes pulls us out from the mainstream so that he can help us to listen better to his whisper. And there's some things that were in Ur that had to get taken out of Abraham, and I think that two examples from his life are lies and manipulation. How many of you are manipulative here this morning? Wait, let's close. Every head bowed, every eye closed, right? Right? I'm not manipulative. What? You really? Ladies, can I just tell you, guys actually believe it where you just are all of a sudden sitting there and you're like, hey, what are you doing here? Oh, I was just sitting here. I didn't wait for you. Um, that was better in my head. All right. <laughs> no, no lady jokes, dissing, manipulation. I got it, guys. Just learn from my example. Learn from my example. Listen to this. Why, why would this be here? Is, why would I say lies and manipulations? Well, first of all, the lies are definitely on, on 
Abraham's end where he says to his wife, he says, when we go into a place, you are beautiful. First of all, I just got to pause and note that Abraham is in his 70s. His wife is in his 70s, and she is beautiful. How many, you know, it, it's amazing that he's walking 1,400 miles, but his wife is beautiful, and he knows that if somebody sees her, they're going to kill me, and they're going to take her. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to protect me. So when we come into a place, would you please say that you're my sister, and that will, that will help. And the thing about it is, is that it's actually half truth. If you read in Genesis 20, 12, it says, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. She became my wife. So it's a little bit complicated in Abraham's life, but he says to her, like, hey, listen, I want you to lie for me. First of all, can I just say this, men? There should never be a situation where you should ever be asking your wife to take the hit by being deceptive to shield you. I think that a real man is somebody that steps out and brings his family behind him and says, I'll take the hit and shield you. But sometimes we are growing in our journey and we do stupid stuff. And Abraham was just worried and he does a self-preservation mood. You know, we'd like to think that we're the heroes, but sometimes we do dumb stuff as guys. And thank you ladies for loving us in spite of that. But he says, say that you're my sister. And she was, but... I think I've come to learn something about myself is that my father raised me in such a way and my mother raised me in such a way that truth is huge for me. I believe that truth is like a road and Jesus came in grace and truth. And, and the thing about it is this, is that if, if truth paves a way, grace can have its day. But if, if truth isn't laid out clearly, you can't really roll in with grace because it, it just becomes sloppy. And, and that's why the Bible says Jesus came in grace and truth. But when you get caught up in half-truths, you complicate life. You make things difficult for God. I have some half-truths in my life. Can I share one of them with you? Confession? Mine revolve around Amazon deliveries. Oh, hey, somebody feels my pain, right? Something shows up, a box shows up at the house. And what's that? Oh, oh maybe Andrew uh, ordered something. Did you get like 15 boxes this week? No, I think the kids are like school supplies are coming in or something like that, right? You create tension there. But I, I think that lies, even though they seem little, piranha are little but you get a whole school of those things and watch what they do. So you just gotta, if you've never seen this, when you go home today, you need to type in piranha eating cow and just watch it. It'll terrify you. By the way, Ray Doily, I don't know if you're watching, living down in Columbia, do not swim in the Amazon. Don't do it. Just one word, piranhas. Piranhas. Like they just come in and just The cow is down to the bone in 10 minutes. They come in, but I, I, I feel sometimes we just let little half-truths swim into our life, and the next thing you know, it's like, how did that happen? How did I get to this place? And it complicates things for God, where he's trying to take us in a right direction, but we get in the way, or sometimes we even go a little further, and we get, get in the wrong way of things, and that really takes us to the next level with kind of manipulation. Like Genesis 16, it reads like this. It says, Sarah, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, what you need to know about Abraham's story, I can't assume that you know this. But Abraham, God tells him, I'm going to make a nation out of you. Through you, all people would be blessed. But he does it through the birth of his child. He says, you're going to have a son. And in fact, the angel of the Lord shows up at Abraham's house, at his tent, and begins to say this to, to him, and, and his wife overhears it in the other room, this 76-year-old 70, woman, and she just is like, are you serious? Does this look like a baby body to you? She's like, are you? Yeah, right. And she laughs. And what's amazing is the, that God says, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she laugh? I think that sometimes if God would have 
told you what he would have done through your life, like before it happened, or if God would have told you where he wants to bring you ahead of him taking you there, you, would, you and I would probably just be like, that is absolutely crazy, no way, not possible, huh? And the Lord doesn't let her off. In fact, the, the angel says to her, he says to Abraham, he says, why did Sarah laugh? And she, she classically steps up and she goes, I didn't laugh from the kitchen or wherever she is. She's like, I didn't laugh. And he goes, yes, she did. You ever, you ever step out in the wrong direction and you know it's your bad, but you don't want to say my bad or anything like that? And, and, and then you want to make that person feel good. So what does our culture do? They say, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. But when it comes to truth and it comes to walking with God, God says, no, you laughed. And that's what I really believe. Like, great truth has to pave the way. And then the second that we own our junk, that's where God pulls in with a dump truck of grace all over our life and say, the point is not that you make a mistake. The point is that you learn from it and know that you're dependent on me for gracing it. And as soon as you just, you could live your whole life in the right, right intention and just, just moving towards Jesus and saying, God, I want to be like you, falling on your face and saying, Lord, I just can't believe I did that. And he's like, you know what? That's okay. Here's my grace. But when you, when you, just, you just ignore truth and rush to grace, you complicate things. But what's worse is when you begin to think that you need to help God in order for him to get done what he needs to get done. That's what manipulation is. And so what does she do? She says to Abraham, Abraham, I know God said you're going to have a, a child, right? But here's what I know we can do. I know that if you go with her and have a kid, then that's possible. So maybe he'll build it through there. And, and what does Abraham do? He's like, okay, sure. Typical guy, you know, like what happens? The, the, the woman has a child. His name is Ishmael, and God works him into the plan. There's no such thing as, as accidental births, just accidental parents. And God says, I'm going to bless him. I'm going to still use this. I'm going to work through this. But it complicates the situation. There's tension. There's problems. I look at my life, and I say, how many times have I got in the way of God because I was trying to make his will happen? I was, or let's say it like this, I was trying to make sure that I got the very best for my life, and instead I brought out a problem because I wasn't supposed to touch it. There's an old fable called King, uh, the fable of King Midas, and he's given this, this wish, and so he thinks to himself, what, what would I want if I could have anything? It would be that whatever I touch turned to gold. Bing, bling, bling bling, like everything he touched turned to gold until one day his daughter, who he adored, ran into his room and jumped into his arms and there in her arms he, she, she turned to gold. And all of a sudden it wasn't valuable anymore. I think sometimes I have the touch of Midas on my life that I think I know what I need and I think I know what God wants to do and I think I know how to bring it about so that I start touching the will of God and God's like, would you please stop? Would you please stop trying to do for yourself what I can do for you? Would you please trust me? Would you please allow me to take out of you or of Chaldea? Would you allow me to take out of you lies and manipulation? Would you learn to trust me? You see, the interesting thing about Abraham, he never gets any, he never gets any commandments. The only commandment God gives him is the one walk before me. Everything that God gives to him is promises. There's no Ten Commandments. God is trying to show us that before the law is good and it shows us what's wrong with our life, but we have more of a problem with what God wants to make right with our life. We struggle with the very thing that this whole truth of Christianity hinges on, that it's not what you do, it's not your performance, it's not how holy you are, it's not how holy you are, it's how open you are to saying, God, I have nothing, you have everything, I trust you, I don't trust me, would you please help me? And God says, finally, somebody that I can do something through. Here's my power, here's my love. Here's my peace. Here's my truth. Here's my help. Here's my hope. It's yours. Take it. We complicate it because we think that we can get out on parole with good behavior with God. 
And so we get busy and we do stuff and we think, you know, if I just do it this way and if I just bump it and nudge it a little bit and God's like, please stop. I don't want you to be a part of this. I want to bless you. I want to ta- do something for your life and I don't want the enemy to be able to say that, that I, to you, into your head, you did this, you made it happen, you helped me out. I want you to trust me. How many, how many times have we, and it's not like a, a servant and a child, and it's not like necessarily like half-truths, or, but we just complicate it, and God says, I want you to find freedom for that. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans so that I could bring you into promise. I just want to say this morning to you that are here, God has more good things for your life than you realize, and he wants you to turn your heart and attention to him, not in effort, not in trying to get involved, not in trying to speed up the process, but for you to rest in faith and say, God, the only way that this could happen is if you do it, and I'm going to trust you. You see, the moment that we get in there and we try to make it happen, we slow the process down. We complicate it. God's looking for people that would be like Abraham, that would understand that it's a journey, that you're not who you ought to be, you're not perfect, but he can make you perfect. The Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I could go through the Ten Commandments right now and nail you on any of those, probably this week. Did you obey your parents? Little coughing child. (laughs) I mean... Like, we could go through, do, do, this is the thing about Abraham is this, is he shows us that our relationship, our lo- God's love for us, our ability to be made right in God is not a system like the prison system where you get good behavior and your sentence gets lightened or that you, it's not a job that you do this and you get a paycheck. It is a loving, heavenly father who ran into your rescue and saved you from yourself and gives you a blessing and a, and a, and a pardon and a forgiveness and an inheritance and it has nothing to do with you, everything to do with him. Thank God for Jesus. I Listen, I can't do what he did. I could do half of the story, right? I could die on a cross, but I'm not beating death. I'm not beating sin, but Jesus beat it for you and I that every single time we manipulated, every single time we lied, every single time we put our human hands all over the thing, God slapped our hands back and said, you're not going to do it. My son's going to do it for you. All I ask is that you hold out your hand like Abraham and say, God, if you said it, I believe it. And he looks at you and he says, you're righteous. That that just doesn't compute, especially for any of us who've grown up in the Catholic Church or the Pentecostal Church where legalism abounds. Abounds. Abraham shows us the journey of faith starts with us saying, God doesn't need my help. But then it continues a little further, and sometimes I think two examples that we see here from him are strife and grief are other things that he wants to take out of us. And I'm going to wrap this up very quickly. But let me, let me show you what I mean by strife and grief. His nephew Lot, he's raising him like his own son. And it says that Abraham said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. Is not the whole land before you? If you take the left, I will go right. And if you take the right, I will go left. And the Bible says that Lot looked at the land and he saw that there wasn't enough room for their, his sheep and his uncle's sheep They had to separate because it was creating problems and tensions, right? Small house. And so he looked, and instead of him saying, Uncle, you know what? You've raised me my whole life. You've been like a father to me. That's not my choice. You pick it. No, the Bible says that he looked and he saw the well-watered field and valley below and said, Oh, I'll take that. I mean, it was a courtesy that his uncle did it. I really believe with all my heart, Abraham is like, doesn't matter. You know what? When you are walking in the promises of God, when you're walking in the blessings of God, you realize that you don't have to make it happen. If you go left, the blessings will be there. If you'll go right, somebody needs to hear this differently this morning, that, that you, God, that Joshua said this, that the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You're thinking that if you get to this place or in this situation or in that location or in this relationship or that account needs to be at this level, that happiness will be there once you get there. And God's saying, it really doesn't matter whether you go left or right. My blessing's with you wherever you go. 
But I appreciate about the lesson here, it's really lessons that Abraham's showing us that his nephew needs to learn, but I appreciate the fact that he says, let there be no strife. How many of you would say that the drama in my family, Hollywood has nothing on the drama in my home? You've got people, if, the, if you visit this relative, those relatives are upset. If you try to bring up this subject, it's just, I am so grateful. I, I have to say this, I have to say this. My in-laws came up, my mother and father-in-law came up yesterday, and they showed up at like 12.30. They stayed for a couple of hours. They are the lowest drama people in the universe. I, I can't even tell you. Like, for some of you, I, 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 I know your situations are complex. I'll pray for you. But don't pray for me when it comes to family drama, like when it comes to like extended family, it's all good. Like, it's all good. You know, don't get me wrong, we, we go through things with our family like you do, but I love the fact that Abraham minimized strife. Some of us need to hear this this morning. Stop creating so much drama. Stop it. Would you just stop it? This is family. This is, this is taking along everyone that we can, we, there's enough of God and God's blessings that we can all have the very best from him. It's just fear that makes us sometimes do those things. And God just looks at his nephew and he says, nephew, let there be no strife with us. It's, it's all good. It, you, you pick. I'm not worried about it. When you're blessed, you don't worry about those things. When you're in God's promise, when you're in that space of knowing it's not a physical location, I think some of us have the problem that we, that we have relocation disease, that we think that if we pack up and we go here that it's gonna change everything, but you're gonna carry all your issues with you and unpack them in that new location, and you're gonna be the same there that you were here. I remember when a friend of mine was trying to get onto the mission field to go to Haiti, they were interviewing this couple for, for that, and uh, they asked, they said, so what are you doing right now with your life? And they said, what does that matter? And he said, everything. He said, because what you're doing here is what you'll do there. And I think it's the truth, the same with me, the passes that I give myself, the things that God says, you gotta work on that, like change that drama, like put an end to that. But you see greed rise up in Lot, and he says, oh, I'll take, I'll take that. I want that. And I think life is just too short. If there's anything that I feel like my, my wife and her family has put in my heart, it's that classic, the grass is always greener on the other side. And to be content. Just, just to be content. It's okay to be content. That's not complacent. I love how one person said that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. You can be sure there's a higher water bill. I love how Carol Burnett said it. She was a comedian in the 70s. She said, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence because the septic tank's leaking. You just don't know it until you're in that standing there. But I don't know who said this. This one is really classic. The grass is always greener where you water it. What if you stopped making God's place of perfect promise for your life when this happens and that happens and when I get here and do that? What if you just started watering where you are? And then all of a sudden you'd realize actually yours is the lawn that everybody's peeking over their fence at, looking at. It's okay. Like, in fact, in the New Testament he says it like this, learn to be content in the circumstances with which God has placed you. Paul said it like this, physical conditioning profits a man, but godliness is good for this life and in the life to come. And, and to be content, that's just such an important thing. We're on a journey. And the Bible says that after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, do not fear. I am your shield and your great reward. This is a beautiful truth. It's really found in that phrase, after these things after these things. I realize as I'm talking about this, there are a couple of you in transition thinking about moving. Can I just say I'm not preaching at you right now? I just realized sometimes you just, you, you prepare a message and sometimes if you read that wrong, like I'm not sending messages out to you. Like, but 
you, you, do you see the truth of what I'm talking about? Like, oh, if I just get here and I just do that, that like everything's gonna change. And it's like, no, just, it's okay. But sometimes we have to physically move, right? I mean, Abraham did that too. But God says to him, after these things, what, what things happened that God said to him, Abraham, don't fear, I'm your shield and your great reward. It was the greatest lesson, the greatest antidote for greed that Abraham would ever have. His, his nephew Lot settles into the valley. It turns out that he, he, the name of his road was Sodom Lane, and it, it was adjacent to Gomorrah Avenue. And he was, the Bible says that he was in the city gates. He was in the gates of the city, which meant that he was sitting, trying to make a difference in Sodom and Gomorrah, trying to bring some godliness. And the Bible says that they, that they, were, a, they were grieving God. They were, they were beyond, like God said, if I could find a hundred in there, I'd save the city. And then Abraham says, how about 10? And God even says to Abraham, if I find 10, I'll, I'll do it. He couldn't even find 10 righteous people. This place was so out of control. And so we, we know that story, but here's what happens. At one point, while Lot is down there trying to make a difference, an army comes in and kidnaps his nephew. Abraham gets word. He says, hey, your nephew, who you, you, you let him take that nice property? Well, an army just came in. They just killed everybody. Rumor has it that he's still alive, but they're taking them up north and you may never see him again. He's getting trafficked. He's getting grabbed. You have a window here and if you don't take it, Abraham turns around. He says, he says give me 250 men. Get, get over here. Strap your swords. They run the distance of New Jersey overnight and then they come right into the army against all these odds that are so ridiculous. They're outnumbered 10 to 1. They're, they're swinging. They're fighting. They just ran all this distance and by a miracle he saves his nephew. This is his nephew, his brother's son who was entrusted to him, his brother who died back in the city. There was this deep connection. He said, I can't, I can't let them take, he's the last memory of my brother. I can't let this happen. This can't take place. And he, he just does it. And now he's done. And after these things, they gather up everything. There's a gigantic amount of wealth that the army took from the city. And the mayor of Sodom comes up to him and says, hey, Abraham, Here's your cut. Thanks for saving us. And Abraham looks at him and he says, I won't take even a shoelace for my sandal from you because you're never going to be able to look at me and say that I made Abraham great. God is going to do that. I won't take anything from you. You don't have to make a deal with the devil. You don't have to make a deal with, you don't have to, listen, when in this life journey, one of the things that Babylon is condemned for in the book of Revelation, one of the things that the, where the Chaldeans were condemned for was that they were the, they were the commerce center of the, center of the world. The Bible says that when it was judged, the merchants of the world weeped. Why? Because they fattened their bellies and they filled their pockets with wealth at the cost of other men's souls. You don't have to be corrupt in your business dealings. You don't have to cut corners. You don't have to tell half-truths. You don't have to do any of those things to help God's blessing in your life. God can bless you. He can, he can help you to be content with what you have. You can, you can learn to walk straight in a crooked world. God can help you do that. I was... I thought there was a dog outside. <laughs> woof, woof, woof. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted. Attention deficit, it's real. I remember when we were newly married and we, we were just like, I can't even afford renting, let alone a mortgage. And we were looking for a house and at that time, my goodness, if I had somewhere to go, I'd sell my house today, right? Like it's so inflated, the market's so inflated. Um, it's always a good time to buy a house as long as it's a good deal. Uh, here's a practical tip for you. Always look at what the tax assessed value is. And if it's way over that, don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, we were like, we need a miracle home. And I remember we, were look, we looked at one house that had experienced a traumatic fire and it was going for 200000 And we were like, we could fix this up. I mean, there's nothing, there was nothing in the state of Rhode Island under $200,000 at that time. And we, were, and we were looking at a burnt out house. And I remember my wife was just like, we need a miracle house, like $75,000 house. And we, one of the ladies in our church was a real estate agent and she came up and she, she was like, so I hear you guys are looking for a house. She's like, 
it's been so discouraging. She's like, I know, the market's like crazy. And she goes, you know what? We just need a miracle house. I had friends that were buying houses for $250,000, $300,000 at that time, and that was a lot at that time. But we're just like, we need something for $75,000. And she goes like this. She goes, uh, I'm embarrassed to even say this, but my father just put his house on the market for $75,000. And we're like, really? We call up my father-in-law because he's in just a great renovator, and we say, Dad, like, we've got this house. It's $75,000, and we're just wondering, should we do it? He says, does it have a roof? Yes. Does it have a boiler? Yes. He said, there's nothing in the state under $200,000. Put in your bid immediately. We, there were people walking up with cash offers way above that, suitcases with, you know, briefcases with cash, you know, like, all right, there we go. We'll just kick a little extra here. Just make sure we get the house. And the guy was, he kept saying to his daughter, he said, where are those kids? He goes, where are those kids? He goes, I like those kids. Tell those guys to take their cash and get out of here. I want those kids to get this house. How much can they afford? $75,000. That's theirs. And we got a house for $75,000. Like, what a miracle. The problem is, is that we should have had it paid off in a year, but we made such little amount of money at that time. It was like, it was a miracle house. But it was, it, we sustained it. We were able to do it. What am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you that when it comes to the blessing of God, you don't have to make it happen. God will make it happen for you. And he's still in the business of doing miracles, whether you're looking for a house, you're looking for reconciliation, whatever it is that you're looking for, God wants to bless you and he wants your life to walk in a journey with him. And sometimes he has to get out manipulation and he has to get out deception. Sometimes he needs to work on our greed. Sometimes he needs to work on our strife. But if you'll just keep walking with him, walking before him, you'll find yourself sooner or later walking in this thing called the promise of God where you'll watch God's blessings chase you. You don't have to chase it. God, listen, I think when we get in eternity, we're going to look back and realize God was so much bigger than we thought he was. He was so much more able, but we didn't walk in faith and we didn't trust him. And we missed so many opportunities because we thought we had to hold back when God was saying, let go. We thought that we needed to stand still when Jesus was saying, step up. We thought we had to move back when God was saying, move forward in faith. Trust God. You think if you had tons and tons of money that you, your problems would go away? Anybody that I know who has had lots of money would say that there is, you know, what, you know what more money or anything bigger means? More stress, more management. Don't get me wrong, like, you, maybe you can't buy happiness, but you can put some serious down payments on sorrows. But I think God wants us to know that the king of Sodom doesn't do that for us. Your efforts, yeah, we, we, do, we're in, we can't produce a harvest. We just produce the hustle. And we partner with God. But when it comes to righteousness and God's blessing on your life, that had everything to do with him and nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as I conclude here. All these things of Ur the Chaldeans, all these things in Abraham's life, there's not enough time for us to talk about it. But I can give you one action step you can leave here today with that will change your life if you tap into this sooner than later, is that you would learn to build an altar. Genesis 12, 8. So there he built an altar to the Lord, and he worshiped him there. Genesis 12, 7 says the same thing. Genesis 13, 4 says the same thing. Genesis 13, 18 says the same thing. Genesis 22, 9 says the same thing. Here's the thing that Abraham did over and over and over again. Did he make mistakes? Yes. Did he have things in his life that God needed to get out? Yes. Did he sometimes insert himself in the situation or try to shield it with half-truths? Yes, absolutely. I can't relate to John being the one that is close to Jesus and laying on his chest. I can't walk on water like Peter, but I can 
can definitely relate to Abraham where it's like sometimes this journey feels long. Sometimes it feels like I'm going backward, but I just need to continue walking towards God and trusting him. And if anything good is going to happen in my life, it's not going to because it's not going to happen because I did it or because I earned it. I realize it's going to happen because God decided to bless me and God has decided to bless you. God has decided that if you put your trust and your hope in Jesus that he has commanded his blessing towards you. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying your problems will go away, your debts will disappear. <coughs> I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel. I'm preaching a gospel of blessing in the face of sorrow. I'm, press, I'm preaching a, a, a gospel, the gospel according to Jesus Christ in the life of Abraham that says, I may not be who I ought to be, but I'm not who I used to be. I may not be where I was, and I may not be where I'm going, but I'm taking those steps, and I'm walking in the goodness of God. And the way he did that was one simple thing. He built an altar. I'm really good at praying on my own, but I'm realizing more and more with my family, I need to build an altar. I realize that when I get into the promised land and I enter in my destination, that there are new problems waiting for me. And like Abraham, when he arrived in the Holy Land, he realized he needed to build an altar. Building altars are not easy. They're heavy. They cause you to sweat. You get dirty. They're work. In fact, the very word that's used for altar is actually the place of sacrifice. The Mizbach. The definition of an altar is not the place where you come to get. It's actually the place where you come to give to God. What do you give him? Sacrifices of praise. God, this is the most painful experience I'm going through, but I just want you to know that you are good even when life isn't. I don't blame you. I love you. How many people are out there shaking their fist? If that's what being a Christian is, if that's what you're about, I want nothing to do with you. And they've been gone from church, your life for a long time because they blame the wrong things. Oh God, that's a sacrifice of praise. Those critical moments where you're driving in your car, you're in your office, you're wherever, you can build an altar anywhere. That's what Abraham did. He built an altar. He sacrificed. I love how one of my mentors said it like this once. He said, Paul, sacrifice is not sacrifice unless it's sacrificial. You see, many of you here, you've been coming to church for a very long time, but the wonder of Jesus is gone. You're like, I just don't feel God's presence like I used to. I just don't. And God's saying, do you have a life of altars? He said, God, God said, I, I never left you. I was still waiting at the altar. It's actually you I haven't seen. And here's the beautiful thing of that. God doesn't flip his narrative against us and says, well, now I'm going to punish you. No, that's not who he is. He's still there. I'm watching your back. I'm caring for you. And in the moment when everything came to its perfect place, my question for you is this. Do you have what Abraham had, the kind of faith he had? When God said, you know that son that I promised you? Yes. You know that miracle that I did for you? Yes. You know that thing that was so impossible your wife laughed at and it's right there next to you? Yes, my son, Isaac, thank you for my son. Sacrifice him. What? Yeah, Abraham, if you really love me, sacrifice him. And Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. And God said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, God. He said to him, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, and seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You know, sometimes the very blessings that God brings into our life can be the very idols of Ur. And sometimes God has to make sure that our possessions don't possess us, our blessings don't curse us. He needs to be not number one, because if you have a number one, he's a number two, there's a number three, there's a number four. What God wants to be is everything in your life. And some of you, I really feel impressed of God to say this to you. It's been a long time since you've felt that flood of God's love. 
the flood of his presence. There was a time in your life where you would pray and God's glory would fill the room. And you're like, I wonder if that's just what, you know, happens when you're a new Christian and God gives you incentives. Yeah, that's part of it. But I think God's still waiting at Bethel at the altar. In fact, Abraham, it says that he sets up an altar at one place, Hebron, and he goes out into Egypt and then he comes back to the same altar and he re-engages God again right there. But you know what's interesting? Wherever he went, he built an altar, built an altar. God wants to be everything in our life. He wants to, I, I believe with all my heart, some of us here, we're gonna, we're gonna sing this song one more time that we were singing at the end. And as we do this, I believe that God is giving us an invitation to return to his altar. Oh, you know, this is a space to come and go. And I believe sometimes, sometimes we need to put feet to our faith. I believe that God is here for many of you. But for some of you, it's been so long. And you're asking yourself, did I miss it? God, did I do something wrong? I think he'd say to you, no, not at all. Just come back to my altar. Live a life of sacrifice. Don't hedge your bets and fix your comforts. Trust me. Follow those impulses that God gives you. Maybe I should talk to that person. Maybe I should help that person. Maybe I should bless that person. Imagine if we started acting. If you want to be impulsive, that's a great, a great thing to be impulsive with is godliness and holiness. It's not just what we stop and work out of our life. It's what we start working into it, that altar, that sacrifice. What, what's your Haran? Where did you come from? What's your Ur? What, I know who the promise giver is. It's not the land that's blessed. It's the God that does the blessing. He wants to bless your life. As we sing this, I invite you to find a place with God, whether it's in your seat or it's up here. What I really invite you to do is not just sing a song, but to engage God on this. Say, God, I'm going to live a life of sacrifice. I'm going to, I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to walk before you. And I'm not going to do it perfect, but I'm going to do it with you. I want your blessings. God, I pray right now you would command your blessing over your people. I pray right now, Father, that they would be the head and not the tail. I pray, oh God, that you would multiply their joys, divide their sorrows. I ask, oh God, that we not take favors from the, the mayor of Sodom, that we do, do not try to help you accomplish it. Lord, give us patience. Give us contentment. But Lord, most of all, give us you. And Lord, to do that today here, we give you us. We give you ourselves. That's what this is, Lord. We, we return to the altar. All our life, you've been faithful. You've been so good. And we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, let's do it.